Yes, it's that time of year again. Of course, we love WKRP all year long, but especially now as we get closer to Thanksgiving and recall that incredibly funny episode. Did you know we have five different WKRP designs, including three different turkey drop-inspired ones? Simply go to CincyShirts.com and type WKRP into the search bar and have a look. Use the promo code at the end of this episode to save 20% on your entire order online or in-store. Now, on with the show. WKRP in Cincinnati. This is WCPO FM 1051 on your FM dial, Cincinnati, Ohio. WKRC Cincinnati. This is the nation station. Hi again, everyone, and welcome to the Cincy Shirts Podcast. It's episode 194. Today on our show, Jim Tarble. Over a period of a couple of years, featured people such as Santana, B.B. King, Albert King, Almond Brothers, NRBQ, Johnny Winter, A.B. and the Stooges. That was the order of the day for as long as the garage existed. You know him from his time on Cincinnati City Council, the leader of the Baseball on Broadway movement, the former owner of Arnold's, former proprietor of the original Ludlow Garage, and more. Mr. Tarble joins us today to discuss those pursuits as well as growing up in Hyde Park, going to Sanex High School when it was still downtown, working in the medical field for a bit, working as a fisherman in New England, plus a whole lot more. Now, if you've been liking the podcast, you can help support it via PayPal or Venmo. Simply use podcast at cincyshirts.com and chip in whatever you feel is fair. Also, be sure to listen to that special promo code near the end of the episode to take 20% off your entire Cincy Shirts or oldschoolshirts.com order. Now, let's talk to Jim Tarble. Cincinnati, Ohio. Cincinnati, Ohio. I come from Cincinnati. CincyShirts.com in Cincinnati. Tarbo. Hello, Mr. Tarbold. P.F. Wilson from Cincy Shirts. How do you do? How are you? Good. How are you doing? Uh, so far, so good. Good. This is a huge <laughs> honor. We're, we're very excited well, thank you. that you're doing this for us. Uh, we're huge fans. I think everybody in Cincinnati can say that. Yeah, we're all about T-shirts over here. Oh, good. <laughs> Well, we can certainly get those. We can certainly get those sorted for you. Everything, you know. I've I've, I've been in your shop at Thirteenth and and uh, Vine uh, seventeen times, but never actually inside the inside the store. I go by all the time. Oh, you need to come in. Yeah, great. Yeah, and what you you need to come in, and we're at Thirteenth uh, and oh, Main. No. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm afraid I'll buy a shirt. You know, I've got I've got enough shirts. There you go. Well, you can never uh, have too many, as we always say. But, um, exactly. so, I mean, a lot of folks know the name. I don't know how much folks know about you. So we should probably start from the beginning. You were born and raised in Cincinnati, correct? Well, be, to be specific, cause it's kind of fun. Yeah. Uh, I was, my father's family, the Tarbells are from Brown County, Well, they're from New England in 1670, moved to Brown County. My great, great grandfather was a merchant seaman. And then he, uh, after he left the Indian Ocean, he came back here to the Gulf of Mexico and up the Mississippi, Ohio. And on his way north, we guess, it's not clear, to uh, Pittsburgh, you know, where the Ohio converges, 
with the Allegheny, et cetera. Yep. Uh, his, he was a riverboat captain, and his would-be lady fell out of a tree named Martha Stevens and his family from Everdeen, Ohio, and she broke her arm, and he stopped the boat and saved her and married her. Oh, wow. And that's how we got started. <laughs> that's how we got started in Brown County. And from Ripley, the next generation went to Georgetown, the county seat of Ohio, of, of Brown County. That was my great-great-grandfather and, um, excuse me, my great-grandfather, and that he was a, a lawyer and a judge. And then his son succeeded him as a lawyer and a judge. And then his son, my father, succeeded him as a lawyer and didn't li- didn't live long enough to be a judge. He died of a heart attack when he was 45. But I was, my family, my mother and father met at the University of Cincinnati and married and moved to Georgetown, where my father's from. And that's about 40 miles east of here. And they were, uh, when World War One came, World War Two came, my father enlisted immediately and was off to France in short order. And my mother was left there kind of stranded, if you will, even though there was carvels around. So she moved to Dayton with me and my sister. And uh, so some of me is in Dayton, Ohio, as a, as a child. But back up for a second to your question. I was conceived in Georgetown. That's that's the legend. Okay. <laughs> I was conceived in Georgetown, but they had no hospital. So it was time for me to be born in 1942. They brought me to J- Jewish hospital in Cincinnati to be born. So I have dual citizenship. <laughs> uh, and no no one can deny me that. And so uh, back to uh, Dayton, my father came back in 46 from the war and moved to Cincinnati. And uh, to a, a cedar shake shingle carriage house set back away from all the other houses on observatory in Hyde Park. So I grew up there. And the, the house was typical carriage house that had been converted to a residence, but very small, too. So, so small, you had to go outside to change your mind. <laughs> and that was a big part of where I'm coming from because I was, my, the house was, so small, as I said, my mother, right after breakfast, would throw us out onto the street, so to speak. And that was not a bad thing, because in Hyde Park at that time, and still, I guess, to a great extent, there's a lot of there's a lot of focus. There's a civic center there in Hyde Park Square where you can get so much of your retail service, and you can get church, and you can get school, and you can get a little bit of a park in the middle, you know, that that's the kind of a sort of down-home kind of atmosphere I grew up in. People had, um, my, the guy who fixed my bicycle had a shop in his garage. Jim Ramundo, the, the tailor for the neighborhood who tucked, you know, who um, shortened pants and lengthened sleeves, uh, did that in his home. That, you know, that's the kind of atmosphere I grew up in. So, when I talk about my campaign as a sense of place, it's so much about what I experienced growing up that was good. It was healthy, gave me confidence, trust, you know, a sense of place. I knew uh, my neighbors. I got jobs. I collected returnable bottles when I was eight years old was my first job. And at the end of a week, 
I would take those returnable bottles to the rear of the Kroger store on Hyde Park Square. There was a Kroger store there then. And by the way, at that time, the, the manager would carry the, your groceries to your car if if you were driving. We weren't driving. But that just to give you an idea of what kind of a hometown place Kroger was at that time versus what, what they are now. And then uh, you would fill out your credit slip for what, how many bottles you brought back. And then you'd go to the front of the store and the clerk cashier would give you what you said you wrote down on the credit slip, uh, what you had brought in. So, so you had uh, a sense of trust. You know, you're eight years old and you're trusted and you've got 20 cents in your pocket and you go across the street on the square to Mr. Lewis's five and dime store where he had a penny candy department. And for 10 cents, you got a box of liquor cigarettes, a couple of non-pareils, two Mary Janes, and a Mexican Red Hot. You still had 10 cents left over uh, to carry you through the week. And then at age, <clears throat> that was age eight. So uh, if anybody questions me about my knowledge of recycling, you know, I go back to age eight. <laughs> that was what I did for a living at age eight. Age 11, I was selling papers. <clears throat> the Empire and the Post in front of the Kroger store on the sidewalk for Charlie Ginocchio, the, the regular uh, paper salesman. He was on vacation. I took his place at age 11 for a while. Uh, about the same time, I was knocking on doors, looking for yard work or whatever. And uh, Mr. Kispert answered the door. I didn't know who he was. I was just looking for work. And he said, um, I said, I'm looking for yard work. Perfectly. He said, I'll see you on Saturday. So I started working for him on Saturday, 1953, at age 11. Continued for two years, every Saturday for, um, you know, I'd get $3 a day. The second year, I got $4. He was the president of a bank, uh, the Norwood Hyde Park Bank, which has become Fifth Third. But at that time, there were two branches of Norwood Hyde Park Bank, one in Norwood, one in Hyde Park, on the square, which became, you may know it as Teller's Restaurant. Yeah. Yeah, and now it's another restaurant with a different name. But that, if you look at it, it looks like a bank because it was, and it says Hyde Park engraved on the on on the banner at the top of the building. So since I was taking care of his yard, that became my go-to for depositing my three dollars a week, three dollars a day. I'm sorry. Then let's see, that ran its course when I was sixteen. I started working in hospitals because I was curious about uh, medicine and about hospitals and everything in that world. And a friend of mine was going to have major surgery that summer, and I, I wanted to stay in touch with him. And I was also thought it might be a chance to get closer to the hospital environment. <clears throat> so I worked as a candy striper. You can stop me anytime. <laughs> oh, no, that's, that's fine. This then, is just what we wanted, wanted to find then, out. That led me to uh, uh, working in the emergency room because, uh, you know, taking plants to to people's rooms was fine, but not always exciting working in, in the emergency room. And that led to my becoming an inhalation therapist and then a respiratory therapist and a surgical assistant and then an administrator. So I did hospital so things for 10 years from age 15 to age 25. Oh, wow. So wait, uh, the, so where were you going to high school at this point? 
Well, with the, uh, so I'll start real quick with uh, kindergarten. Was my mother is Catholic. I'm my father's a Methodist, but my the Catholicism uh, mother is going. That's going to rule, right? So I ended up. I would have gone to St. Mary's for kindergarten, but they didn't have one. So I went to Hyde Park Elementary, which was on the square. Yeah. Uh, for kindergarten, and then switched to St. Mary's, which was also a block from the square. And in between, by the way, at age 16, I worked at the library in Hyde Park Square, uh, you know, just uh, stocking books and stuff. Uh, back up for a minute to St. Mary's, one, grades one through eight, St. Xavier High School, which was, by the way, downtown at the time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it started in 1930, there, 1830, thereabouts. And uh, the, the parking lot that's now at the corner of 7th and Sycamore was where my school was, the Jesuits and their in, and I was in the class of sixty, which was the last class from downtown, and I was there freshman, sophomore, junior year, and and then finished at Withrow, which was the neighborhood public school, public high school, once again a few blocks from the square. Yep, that was a big deal. Uh, I mean, going to St. X and its academic pursuits, its met reputation for excellence with the Jesuits, you know, had a very strong impression on me. But I must say that going to a great, going to high school downtown, you know, as a preteen teenager was a big deal. It had quite a bit of an impression on me. Not so much uh, what we would see before school started, because we pretty much were dropped off and went right into the classroom. After school, you had free time you know, before you were able to get a ride home. And so you'd hang around downtown for an hour, a couple hours. Uh, I learned a lot <laughs> about the city and about downtown, the centerpiece of a sense of place in Cincinnati as a kid, as a teenager. That, you know, had a lasting impression. Uh, I would back up for a minute to say that it was all boys, all white, all Catholic, mostly upper income. We were not. But I, that's the variety of experiences I had there. My year at Withrow was wonderful in that it was a public school. It was mixed, mixed religion, mixed color, mixed backgrounds of all kinds, mixed income. And that was a, another really big part of my growing up to be exposed to that kind of variety. While I was there, I joined a group called Fellowship House, which was the first, arguably the first interfaith, interracial, uh, teenage group in the city. And that was founded by a group of adults who had a similar kind of organization for adults. And pretty soon they started this one for their kids. And I was part of that. It was another part of my growing up that was so important. And, and maybe I should wrap wrap it up for a minute and give you, give you a little bit of breathing room <laughs> by... By, by saying that so much of where I'm coming from was Hyde Park Square and all the things that I said just now that it represented. You know, it was doctors, lawyers, Indian chiefs, three fruit and vegetable stores, three five and dime stores, three shoe repairs, three pharmacies, a, a play space, a, a, a yard space, park space in the middle of the square, enough room to you know, romp around a bit and also sit and enjoy the fountain, which a neighborhood resident, Mr. Kilgore, who founded Cincinnati Bell, donated, 
then, you know, there were three public transportation routes that went through the square every day, all day. As I mentioned, the, the elementary school, the, the great, the, the kindergarten school, the, all those things were within a block or two blocks of each other. Now, that was about to explode in 1957. I was 15 years old. And Hyde Park Plaza, the, one of the first shopping centers, which was not far away from Hyde Park Square. And it was, you know, that it was this, instead of being pedestrian oriented, like Hyde Park Square was and is to a great extent, it became almost totally vehicular focused. You know, it was all about the car and parking. And that was becoming the order of the day, you know, the car, the car, the car. Well, I was just going to say that um, you, uh, you grew up in a time when a lot of changes are happening post-World War II. Suburbs, the, the freeways are, are being built not through Hyde Park, but next to Hyde Park in neighboring Norwood, the freeways go through, and all these huge changes. Yeah. And I was just going to say things like, it's an interesting dichotomy you mentioned there, the Hyde Park Plaza versus Hyde Park Square and the, the change there, you know, in people's thinking and attitudes and with the way they shop. Yeah, it was, it was dramatic. I mean, this was all over the country. That was, you know, a phenomenon that was taking place forever and, you know, all about the automobile. So, you know, pretty much all about the automobile. Well, Hyde Park Square was uh, becoming a victim of that, of that breakdown, breakup, whatever you want to call it. And uh, there was this furious debate among the merchants and the property owners on the square about what are we going to do now because, uh, the, you know, the, um, a lot of the merchants are moving to the plaza because of the parking situation. And so the people were taking sides as to whether we should accede to that or whether we should stay focused on what we've got that's so unique and has served us so well. If we're going to go with the first part, and that is take over the the you know, the, sense, the uh, program of the plan so that meant tearing down half the buildings on the square to create parking and I remember at age 15 this furious debate uh, among the property owners and the and the merchants about you know yes or no and the yes guy said no I mean the no guy said no we're not going to tear down every third building or any buildings for that matter what we have is two perfect good planning 101 sense of place it has more to to offer in the long run than the plaza will have and i was so intrigued by all that discussion and i was on the square every day doing something so at age 15 i paid five dollars and joined the hyde park business association so i could get a closer window into that discussion and um, once again, that has boiled down to being such an important part of where I'm coming from today, 70 years later. And I know just from personal experience what what happened and what it meant to me at, the, at that moment, what it meant to my community. Coincidentally, uh, my father had died at the, about that time. My mother was working full time. wasn't really anything to go home to after school, so I hung around at the square. Whereas before I had been employed there, as I mentioned, and I had shopped there for my my parents and for me and for the family, but here I'm hanging out, looking for you know something to do while while I wait to for somebody to be home. And the merchants were kind of 
not particularly pleased by the likes of myself and others like that who were kind of getting in the way. You know, we weren't buying anything. We weren't, you know, so we were just kind of hanging out and and um, we were getting a little bit of pressure. Well, that resulted in my thinking that we could use a way station for us and just a place for the teens hanging out to go and maybe in a more focused, more constructive atmosphere. And that could have been called the Hyde Park Teen Center. Well, the, and coincidentally, there was a vacant building right on the square that was sitting idle. The city bought it to tear it down for parking to compete with the square. The merchants didn't want to tear anything down. The building stayed, but it was vacant. And I said, well, there's this really neat old 19th century church. It'd be perfect for crazy people like us teens. And the city said they would study it. The merchants said they would study it. They came back and said, it's just too expensive. It's not going to work. So that was the end of that. I went on with my life in the hospital pursuit as a medical care pursuit, as I mentioned, ended up moving to Boston for that reason. You know, thought I was going to be a doctor, thought I'd go to the medical school there, whatever. I did end up working in hospitals there, but, but along the way, my my bedside professor, bedside care professor said, oh, you'll do fine, Targo. My chemistry and physics teacher said, Targo, you are not going to be a doctor. Huh. And what college so did you go I, to there? I went to Lowell Institute, which is a night school uh, in Cambridge that was run by a consortium of schools with Boston University, Boston College, Radcliffe, Harvard, MIT. They all combined together to form this inexpensive night school for guys that are working during uh-huh. the daytime. Oh, okay. And that was also, you know, a really wonderful experience. Finished my studies there. I didn't graduate, but, but I finished my formal studies there. Last year, I was a unit manager, which is a low-level administrator in, in Massachusetts General Hospital, which was pretty much the piece de resistance of hospitals in the country at the time. And I still wasn't happy I really wanted to work with patients and not as an administrator. So that wasn't going to happen. I was working in the summer as a lumper, which is a loader unloader of fishing boats in Gloucester, which is right outside of Boston. Barney, the, the harbor master, knew that I wanted to be out on the water. You couldn't, you know, if you're a tarbell, you had to get out there. And you don't get those jobs because they're, they just, they're all family. You know, if you're a, a, a kid from Cincinnati in the Midwest, that all you ever knew about fish was Mrs. Paul's fish sticks, <laughs> you don't really fit in, in, in to that extent. But Barney knew I wanted to get out there. He got me a side on the job, and I ended up working as a commercial fisherman in Gloucester and then Point Judas, Rhode Island, for about a, a year and a half as a deckhand. And the, really what saved my day is I knew how to cook pretty much, and Part of that was my, you know, my dad being, having passed away, my mother's working, so I'm helping with the kitchen and preparing food gave me a, a window into that world. And uh, then when I was fishing uh, on the day in question, I got a letter. I'd taken my mail with me out to sea, and it was from a fellow uh, who was the member of the Hyde Park, what, what became the Hyde Park Teen Center Board. And he said that, uh, you know, we're starting this teen center uh, so the kids have, you know, a little more to do after school and on weekends and stuff, keep 
keep everybody busy and entertained and educated. And, you know, we're, we're starting this center and somebody said, you might be interested in being the director. And I thought, what? (laughs) (laughs) You know, and it was basically the same idea that I had 10 years prior as a teen. And I think my mother heard about the job being available, wanted me back home and that's how that they got that information about my perhaps being interested in being the director. I I hadn't known any of that. It's all kind of behind the scenes. Hmm. But you know, I, I I knew I wasn't going to be a fisherman forever, and thought this connection with history, my history, and the neighborhood, et cetera. I thought I didn't have any choice, so I came back and I became the director of the Hyde Park Teen Center, and that ran its course. Long story short, that became for me, the Ludlow Garage nightclub. And I don't know uh, rock and roll, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I don't know how much you know about it. Oh, I know about the rock and roll. Or do, <laughs> do you know about the Ludlow Garage? A little bit. Um, I'm, I moved here in 1993, and so I've, I've familiarized myself with the history over the years of, you know, with the Cincinnati Rocks. I worked for uh, Everybody's News and City Beat. So I'm a little familiar, and actually I saw a show at the Ludlow Garage, the one that's the, it, it's the location in Clifton. Is that the, we're talking the same one, or is this, did it move? This is where I get a little foggy. Well, it, it's a new or, uh, new version of that. It's got okay. nothing to do except the name. They took I got, the okay. name. Okay. More, more power to them. But yeah. uh, do you remember the, you remember the groups you saw? Uh, well, the, this was just recently, actually, at the at the newer one. I saw uh, oh. I saw Book of Love. Oh. I didn't see any. Uh, yeah, like I said, I, I moved here in 1993, and I did not see any concerts there. I've seen Bogart, saw one at Sudsy's, loads at Bogart's, uh, you know, the arena yeah. and all that. So, yeah, but never at the original Ludlow Garage. I think uh, one of my bosses might have seen some people at the original Ludlow Garage, though. He's just a few years younger than me, so, but. The garage was 1989. Let's see, just a minute here. <laughs> I wanted to continue with the work of the garage, basically. I mean, of the teen center, basically. And it was all about, it was mostly about music. And then I went out looking for a place to do a club that would contain uh, that kind of activity. And we were having art and art classes and shows and so forth, but quickly became, music became the focal point. It was so much about the progressive rock scene in San Francisco, et cetera, et cetera. So we're talking and, late sixties. by the way, late sixties, early seventies. I'm sorry. Late sixties, early seventies. Yeah, we're talking. Okay. Yeah, sixty nine, seventy, seventy one. Okay, cool. Just to give people some perspective. Yeah, yeah. And I found this building on on Ludlow Avenue that was for rent, and I just had a sense it would work really well for this for this work for this program. I leased it and uh, started out with. Oh, happy day. Well, I did a couple of things before fixing up the garage for the club and did a couple of things at the zoo. One was uh, the Evelyn Hawkins Singers and Oh, Happy Day, which is this gospel group from California that had this song, Oh, Happy Day, that happened to be on the, on the popular music hit parade, even though it was a traditional gospel. We did that at the zoo, and that was followed by the Midwest Mini Pop Festival at the zoo, which was... Uh, Grand Funk Railroad, a uh, Paul Butterfield blues band with Elvin Bishop, the Vanilla Fudge, several local groups. 
we had had a light show group at the teen center and they came back together with me and did the light show at that event and then stayed on became the light show the house light show for the Ludlow Garage. And that, over a period of a couple of years, featured people such as Santana, B.B. King, Albert King, uh, Almond Brothers, NRBQ, uh, Johnny Winter, et cetera, et cetera, Iggy and the Stooges. Wow. <laughs> and that was the order of the day for as long as the, the garage existed. Did the uh, rec- you know, records uh, help with, uh, there's a record called uh, Ludlow Garage, called the um, Almond Brothers at the Ludlow yes. Live at the Ludlow Garage. Yeah, yeah. Those were, and, and so just things like that. Well, that ran its course in 71. Then I was stupefied because I was so wrapped up in that whole scene, that whole world. But the cost of doing entertainment, such as I met, uh, alluded to was just out of hand. And uh, unless you were going to exceed to the larger arenas, you needed, you, uh, you know, you just couldn't, you couldn't stay. I, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to do a small club, kind of a, you know, a center, youth center. Uh, so I closed the garage and moved downtown in 71. You know, I'll stop there for a moment because that was kind of an end of an era. You know, there's just this voice from on high that told me to move downtown where most people were moving out yeah. to the suburbs, farther out, farther out. My sense of place, my growing up, all those experiences I mentioned, I thought I could experience that or recapture it best by being downtown. And uh, I'm a bachelor, I'm in between careers. So I moved downtown, I rented a storefront at the corner of Central Parkway and Vine, just a junk store, you know, trade, buying and trading junk and doing furniture, furniture repairs or whatever. Just one day at a time, it was the, my sister had been the, uh, she was a, a missionary of sorts and was uh, active uh, at the Over the Rhine Senior Services Center. And um, she left to go on a mission in Guatemala and I wasn't, you know, dutifully employed, so I took her place as the breakfast cook at the Senior Citizen Center, which is still there. It's up on uh, Ray Street now by Finley Market. But that gave me, a, you know, a, an interesting window into what was going on in the neighborhood, especially in Over the Rhine. And there was a pretty pretty good, good uh, sense of the old school people that were still living there. But it was compounded by a lot of vacancies and people were moving out and very few people moving in. A few crazy people like myself with a you know, similar backgrounds and similar curiosity had moved downtown. And we ended up all congregating a, a couple of dozen of us on Court Street, you know, a couple of blocks from the courthouse. I'm the only one who had a storefront, though. So all all my crazy buddies were hanging out at my place and cause, because I'm the only one who had a storefront. Well, that led to a club called the Tuesday Night Potluck Supper. And the, the Tuesday Night Potluck Supper was basically every Tuesday, and everybody brought a, a dish, and 
some people were musicians. They played music. Every time I moved my storefront, that institution called the Tuesday Night Potluck Supper went with me. On the day in question, the word got to me that St. Paul's Parish, which is in Pendleton, was in Pendleton, right there on Reading Road and Broadway, was going to be sold to a parking company because the bingo wasn't making any money, so they were moving the parish out to the suburbs. So that that parish, all those buildings, the church, which is an 1848 incredibly gorgeous cathedral in very good condition, and the boys' school and the girls' school and the parish house and the convent, that all that parish was going to be sold for parking, for surface parking. Well, this harkens back to the Hyde Park Teen Center and the Hyde Park Square experience. And another terribly long story short, I said, well, this can't happen. I'm in between careers, I, you know, the bachelor. And I thought, you just can't tear this buildings down. And I'd seen, I've been, I was watching that happen throughout over the Rhine, downtown over the Rhine, West End, where buildings were being abandoned, a sense of place was being lost. I just thought this is where the rubber meets the road for Tarbell. And I went down and got in the archbishop's office. I said, you know, archbishop, you just can't sell this to the parking company and have these buildings come tearing, fumbling, falling down. And he said, well, what do you got in mind, Tarbell? And so I'm, uh, this is 1970. 1973, you know, I'm in my early, I'm about 30, and I said, well, Archbishop, I've got, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a bachelor, maybe two careers, I've got a lot of energy, I'm interested in these buildings and this community and, and all the dynamics, uh, why don't I just go and I'll, I'll hang out there, I'll live there, you pay the taxes and the insurance, Archbishop, and I'll, I'll play pastor, program director, maintenance, whatever. Uh, but I'll, you know, give it some life while we're trying to figure out if there's another use for it. Two years later, and the, my crazies had moved in with me, by the way. So we had a little bit of a brain trust there and a little bit of a kitty to do activities uh, like the neighborhood community center council moved their offices in there and their dances in there. So we had some activity. I did a concert with Ravi Shankar in Oregon and all winter consort in the church, whatever we could do to uh, give it life and keep the wolf from the door. At the end of two years, the archbishop said, you know, I think it's, this is, um, I think it's over. You know, we're going to have to go on. About that time, Donna Weaver, who worked for the Verdon Bell Company, who made bells and church products and so forth, had been in Pendleton at one time, years ago, moved out to the East End, uh, they were looking, she came to me and she worked for them as a sculptor. She came and said, you know, I, um, uh, Jim Verdon, the head of the company that I worked for, the Verdon Bell Company, is talking about going out to Blue Ash and building out there. And we looked at each other and we thought, what? And part of it was a showroom for their products. And we looked at each other and we we started getting giddy about the fact that you know, we're sitting next door, we're living next door to this church that is a showroom like none other for a company that makes church products and bells and so forth. So we went out to see Jim Verdon and argued our case for St. Paul's being their next step. 
And another of the longest story shorts, he went for it. And the Verdon Company expanded there instead of the Blue Ash. Their executive offices are there now. There are 160 people working there in these would-be vacant buildings. There are six businesses there. The Cincinnati Conservation, Cincinnati Preservation Association is there. I ended up, my, my work was over. I, during that time, bought a vacant building which had a yard, and my crazies wanted to have a, a vegetable garden. And so when I finished at St. Paul's and needed to find a place to work, it was sitting there. The building had been vacated for four years and condemned. And that was my, uh, my first big plan to uh, personally redo, reconvert an, uh, an historic building into something livable. And uh, part of that was also finding a permanent home for the Tuesday Night Potluck Supper. And I don't know if you're familiar with Arnold's or not. Oh, yeah. We've had them yeah. on the podcast, That's... actually. The current owners were, were on uh, uh, two years ago. Oh, was that with Chris? Yeah. And, and, uh, and his mother? Uh, yeah. We just we had Chris on, um, and he, yeah, he was uh, yeah he... the current proprietor. Yes, uh, yeah. Chris got there because his mother was my manager for ten years, and when it was time for me to um, get involved in city council at my at my manager's insistence, that it was the uh, important place for me to be. And long story short, I ended up ten years later selling it to her. Because the lease was up, it was unfriendly, um, it was very, very difficult. And I also had purchased the old German restaurant, Grammar's on Liberty, and had that responsibility. So that led to my selling Arnold's to her, because I felt I could trust her to carry on the legacy, which she did uh, for 20 years, the last 10, bringing Chris on, her son on to work with her and, and then eventually take over, which he has, as you probably know. Yep. And uh, in the meantime, I had continued to, if, when Arnold's made a little money, buy a building that was vacant and fix it up so it was there was life in it, number one. Number two, it helped the, the sense of community, sense of place. That ran over in its course in 2007 when Over the Rhine hadn't really happened the way it has now. Uh, it wasn't possible to continue to support Grammar's. I sold it uh, to the people who own it now. And I guess uh, somewhere along the way, that nine years of counsel uh, expired. You know, it was term limited. And, well, it's been since then, it's been just one big wild goose chase. <laughs> and it ends up with me uh, going back to City Hall with what's been happening there recently, it just wasn't working for me anymore to see that happen. And I still had regrets about leaving there. I had been term limited in my choice, but I just felt that was the place for me to be right now, if it only for a year or two. So that's that's where we are. Aha. Uh -huh. And so uh, you're, what, you joined city council, what year, what was it, your first time at city council? What year are we talking? I ran for city council. I don't know if it could be obvious or not, but it was really uh, serving on city council was some total of all those things that, that I talked about. But I really wasn't looking to run for political office. I was. I wanted to keep my sense of place, my community organizer, 
et cetera. I wanted to keep that going, but not necessarily running for office. But in 1997, 98, was this ill-fated proposal. It wasn't ill-fated. I mean, that's my own description of what uh, it represented, was putting the new baseball park on the river again. And I lived early enough and long enough to know that I thought that was a mistake taking it out of the neighborhood of West End where it had been a strong influence on the the goodness of life there uh, and moving it onto the river basically because it was going to become a parking opportunity for a lot of the businesses around there. It really had nothing to do with a sense of place in my estimation. And uh, I ended up, while I was at St. Paul's, looking at this 20-acre parking lot across the street on Reading Road where the casino is now. At that time, it was totally vacant. Land was cleared. There was nobody to displace, nobody to, no businesses to relocate. And it was on the edge of downtown over the Rhine in Mount Adams. It was a perfect setting, you know, for something like a baseball park. If you're going to do a new one, I didn't think we needed a new one, but if you're going to reclaim that sense of place it had when it was on the West End in the neighborhood, bring it back into the neighborhood at the foot of Mount Adams over the Rhine and downtown and right off the expressway, et cetera, et cetera, the fix was in from the team owners and the politicians to put it on the river. And that just wasn't going to, that wasn't going to, work for Tarbell. So I started the Baseball and Broadway campaign. And uh, long story short, we got about 60,000 signatures. You couldn't do it in the council chambers or in the county commissioner chambers. That was all fixed. So the only hope was to get it on the ballot and let the public vote on it. And I did get it on the ballot uh, with my team. I just had this incredible team of volunteers dedicated to that cause. And we got it on the ballot. I got 160,000 votes in the city. But because of the politics and the taxing vehicle to get it started, it had to go. the, The voting had to include the county. And the county residents just didn't get Broadway. It just didn't, didn't, they didn't know. And the river is sexy. And so anyway, it ended up winning in the county and that overrode the winning in the city. And uh, that's where the present stadium got built. Well, I was so upset with the way the whole thing transpired that I was looking for a way to address it more forcefully. And that's that meant going into city council, you know, becoming a member of council, maybe on the planning commission, et cetera, to try to keep things like that, major decisions like that from happening. That's why I ran. And there was another fix in that resulted in my losing by 300 votes. And so I thought, well, that's that. I guess it wasn't meant to be. I went back to the restaurant and, you know, kind of uh, minding my own business until uh, the guy who was part of the fix, who got this big job with the Bengals, was running for commissioner, county commissioner. And I just thought, I need to, I just need to go after that guy. Huh. 
<laughs> and so I got ready to run and the charter committee of which that's the third party, the third community service political party. We don't consider it a political party, but because it exists just for the city of Cincinnati and just for a uh, city council and mayor. Uh, but I thought I was a member of that as a kid and I stayed in, in touch with them as an adult. When I ran for council, I ran as a, as a charter, right? Well, when I was, was now running for county commissioner, charter committee didn't want me to leave. They didn't want me to leave uh, the city. And uh, Bobby Stern, who had been a charter member and a council member for 25 years, this remarkable person said she would she would leave early. She would take her last year and give it to me if I would come on to city council. So I thought, well, if it happens that way, that's what I should do. So I joined city council and then ended up staying for four succeeding uh, terms and um, finally being term limited, as I mentioned, in 2007. I was I, I was I forced to sell uh, grammars as well because of, you know, of the run not happening and the bills stacking up. So uh, Artles has been sold, our grammars has been sold, and I, I really, uh, since then, been just kind of a flying by the seat of my pants, <laughs> you know? Yep. And uh, just kind of sticking my nose in here and there since then until the situation at City Hall happened, and that's what uh, just inspired me to get back into that arena. Every after term limits are expired, you've got to take four years off, and I had taken eight years off. Not with the intention of going back ever. Yeah. It's just that what else, with all the stuff that's going on, it just seemed like that was something I needed to do. So here we are. Here we are, yeah. And like, and, and, and but everybody still knows you and loves you. You know, I still we, we see the big uh, mural is on. That's on Liberty, isn't it? I can't. I can picture it in my head, but I can't remember where it is exactly. Central Parkway. Central Bond, Parkway. Oh, like you know what? It, it's around the corner from our old store. That's what it is. So yeah. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And now we're we're down the street further on Main. Uh, we're, we're we're next to the church there. I think we're at. I always get this confused. We're either at 12th and Main or 13th and Main. I can never remember. I think we're at 13th and Main, but we're next to the church you're in any you're, case. You're, yeah, you're at, you're at 13th and Main now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, next to the church and that, kind that, of catty corner from Japs and, and all that stuff. And yeah, all, all the great stuff happening there as well. Well, and I think that's your second outlet because you've yes. got you have two or three. We have two. Uh, we have one in Hyde Park on Observatory, probably not far from where you used to live. Right. Well, your your place on Hyde Park on Observatory is around twenty eight hundred. Yeah, we're... at the corner of Edwards yep. Edwards and and Observatory. Yeah, I grew up at twenty eight twenty nine. Oh, wow! I I grew up a block away from your store. That's one of the reasons why. Okay, your store is kind of sacred to me. <laughs> oh well, there you go. See, so both both locations. Yeah, we um had somebody contact us. Her grandfather owned our spot, and he, he was a uh, it was a butcher, our end spot that we're in. And uh, she came in and looked at it and told us all about it because yeah, they used to slaughter chickens down in the basement. 
and it would yeah. and they'd boil them down there and we found all kinds of fun stuff about our spot so yeah it's it's a very historic building built in the 1920s so uh, you were probably there when it was whatever it was uh, a butcher shop or I forgot what it was before it was a butcher shop she said because he moved in he was on the corner then he moved into that spot on the end and but it's a it's an interesting we have a blog post about it folks look it up I'll try to link to it in the, the blog post for this episode I want to thank you Mr. Tarbell for taking the time to, to do all this uh, I was going to say about the mural I got sidetracked I still that song still goes through my head that you used for your campaign and we used to sing it on the Burbank show all the time the Mr. Tarbell to the Mr. Sandman that still goes through my head to this day whenever I see you <laughs> well well guess guess what might be I don't know yet because uh, we don't know if we've got the funds to do it or not but I've been safe holding that in reserve that same recording oh boy just for old time's sake yeah well, yeah then fast forward this is campaign uh, if if ever if everybody listening to this podcast could send a dollar, you know maybe we could maybe we could get that jingle back on the air again before this campaign is over. Okay, I don't well, know, but we can... I am thrilled. I am thrilled that you have remembered that. Oh yeah, and especially when it harkens back to the good old days with Marty, uh, et cetera, on on LW. Yep, and. Uh, and uh, bring up, bring back those memories. Goodness gracious. Yep. It's just so, so sacred. Gary and Duke and Rob, yeah, I, I remember whenever your name would come up, uh, Duke would always lead it, I think. He was he was a big fan of it. And uh, <laughs> so, yeah, great, great tune. Um, maybe I'll try to dig up that somewhere. It's got to be somewhere on the Internet. I can use it as the playout song for the interview here. And if not, I'll, I'll just use the original by the Cordettes, I believe, did the original version of Mr. Sandman, I think. We'll find out. Uh, the Cordettes were the very, they were the very beginning. And then the, uh, there was another group that made it a little more famous. The guys that wrote, I'm going to sit right down and write myself a letter. Who was that? Oh, shoot. Anyway, uh, maybe that calls for another conversation. It does. Well, I'll, it I'll tell everybody on the other side of the interview who it turned out to be. Cause I know I have it in my iTunes. So but I tell you, you're in, you're, you're in a special Knowing that it was the Cordettes, put you in very special company because there are only about three people that know that. <laughs> and by the way, I think Gary's going to be coming back here pretty soon for the the you know the um, Larry Goshorn. Oh yeah, yeah, he's a big he's big buddies with them, and he's been friends with those guys for ages. Yeah, I was at the table with the Gary and and Larry, and. Um, and a number of others that are still involved in Play It Forward, you know, that fundraiser oh, yeah. for the, the, retired yeah. musicians. And, uh, you know, Larry was a big part of that. Gary was the, was really the leader. He was the, he was the face of that effort. And I think still, you know, to, to, to an extent. And so that's going to be interesting. That, that remember remembrance, uh, for Larry Goshorn at Madison theater coming up in a few weeks, I think. That's going to be a, that's talk about a sense of place. That's going to be a really, um, a very, very important event. Terrific. Well, the, our last order of business here, uh, what we'd like to do at the end of the interview is to have the guest pick our coupon code that our customers can use for the next week that the episode is up. And they can come into either our store in Over the Rhine or Hyde Park or go online to Cincy Shirts or our sibling site, Old School Shirts, and take 20% off their entire order. So uh, you, Mr. Tarble, get to choose the coupon code. It can be one word. It can be a couple of word phrase. What would you like the coupon code to be? Uh, do I say that out loud yeah. now? Yep, you do. Yep. Uh, uh-huh. 
so it's, it's one word. Can be it? one word or a couple of words. It... Sense of place. Sense of place. Perfect. Sense of place will be the coupon yeah. code. Let me jot that down so I don't forget it. <laughs> Sense of place. Great. Well, terrific. Uh, well, of course, good luck with the election, and um, we'll see you around town. I, I saw you at uh, Oktoberfest uh, over at Moorline House. Uh, you were saying hi to the people. You walked by the booth and, and waved, and uh, yeah, it was, it was terrific seeing you out about among the people. And continued success. Thank you so much. I hope we do this again, then I can interview you. Oh, okay. That'd be fantastic. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you, Mr. Carville. (laughs) We'll talk to you later. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Mr. Sandman, bring me a dream. Make him the cutest that I've ever seen. Give him tulips like roses and clover Then tell him that his lonesome nights are over Jim Tarble. So that's the Cordettes version of Mr. Sandman, and boy, a complicated story here, folks. Here we go. 1954, Vaughn Monroe and his orchestra record the song written by Pat Ballard in the spring of 54. It is subsequently recorded in the same year by the Cordettes and the Four Aces, the other group Mr. Trouble was trying to think of. All right, so the Cordettes get to number one on the hit parade. It wasn't called the Top 40 back then, kids. And the Four Aces make it to number nine, so the Cordettes have the biggest hit with it. Although I guess on a different chart, Von Monroe and his orchestra also get to number one with the song. So the song is a top 10 hit three times in 1954. And uh, there's an also a version in 1954 by Chet Atkins. It's an instrumental version. It does not bother the charts, however, although it is still pretty popular to this day. So they're all, all you needed to know about Mr. Sandman. And as far as I know, Mr. Tarble has not been able to dig up the Mr. Tarble version of Mr. Sandman. Unfortunately, and nobody posted it to YouTube either. Uh, I can also tell you, by the way, that the episode where we talk to the current owners of Arnold's is episode 67. It's from May of 2019, if you want to go back and listen to that. Now would be a good time to remind you to go back and plunder the Cincinnati Podcast archives because we've got all kinds of great episodes back there. Now then, if there's someone you'd like to hear on the show, or if there's someone you'd like us to have back on the show, simply email us, podcast at cincyshirts.com, put podcast guest in the subject line, give us a few sentences about the person you'd like us to have on or have back on the show. And let me see here. Be sure to tell friends and loved ones about the show, of course, including folks who may no longer live in the area but still feel connected to the tri-state. I can also tell you that today's show is produced by me with help from Josh and Darren. Our theme music is Cincinnati by Big Nothing there from Philadelphia. Find their music on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you get your music. Although I guess it's now called Apple Music, but I'm old. I still use iTunes. I I certainly do. Uh, Google Play, you can find their music. Again, anywhere you can find music, you can find Big Nothing from Philadelphia. You can find vintage teas from great places like Boston, Phoenix, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Louisville, Seattle, Philadelphia, and more at OldSchoolShirts.com. Like Cincy Shirts, uh, defunct sports teams, old malls, old TV, radio personalities, old radio stations, all that sort of affair you can find there for 36, 7, 8 cities across America now it is. And when you go to the uh, either OldSchoolShirts.com or CincyShirts.com, use Sense of Place for the next week. Sense of Place, all one word, so you can use that to take 20% off your entire order at either site. You can use it once on uh, each site, by the way. A little trick there for you. Or you can come into the Cincy Shirt stores in over the Rhine and Hyde Park and say, hey, I'd like to use the podcast code, Sense of Place, and they'll take 20% off your entire order. So follow our social channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat for the latest Cincy Shirts news. Tell your friends about the show. Give us a good review wherever you get the podcast from. And as always, download or stream us next time. Bye.
I said goodbye